you this morning that uh, there's a great weightiness upon me to talk about a subject that we have before us. It's, it's, uh, it, it, we could do a, a year-long sermon series on this particular subject, uh, but we're going to press on today. And I'm going to do my best, hopefully, to encourage you and to, uh, to see you, to have you look upon God in maybe a different light than you possibly do. Um, page 13 in your pew Bible, if you don't have your own with you, and uh, just as an aside, if you don't actually have your own Bible and you want one, uh, please see me afterwards. I would be delighted to get you one and, and to get one for you, so uh, please see me if you're interested in that. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, and the title of my message this morning is The Extravagant Love of the Father, part two. We started into this uh, last week, and we're going to start to continue on from there. But we are in one of the most remarkable passages in all of sacred scripture, and what is more commonly known to all of us as the parable of the prodigal son. But as we've been looking over this portion of scripture over the last several weeks, I think we're, we're starting to see two great themes emerge here, to to come to the surface here, if you will, that you really could say is the theme of chapter 15, or the theme of the Gospel of Luke, or really the entire Bible for that matter. And that is this, is that man is more sinful than you ever thought he was, and that God is more loving and more forgiving than we ever dreamed he could be. As Calvin put it in his Institutes in the Christian Religion, this is where the source of all true knowledge lies. When we have a right understanding of these two great things, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves, this is where true knowledge begins. Because the reality here in Luke chapter 15 is that you and I, we're the lost sheep. You and I, we're the lost coin. And we're this prodigal that we've been reading about and hearing about over these last couple weeks because the truth of the matter is that this is an honest picture of every lost and hopeless sinner before coming to God. This is the posture of every man, woman, and child on this earth before fleeing to Christ for mercy and forgiveness. The Bible tells us that we are all like sheep who have gone astray, We have all turned everyone to our own ways, as Isaiah 53, verse 6 says. Psalm 143, verse 2 says, For in your sight no man living is righteous. And as Romans 3 tells us, that there is none righteous, no not one, no one who understands, and no one who seeks after God. Our standing before God on our own is bleak, it is dismal, and it is a hopeless picture, to say the least. And yet, on the flip side of that, lest we become overwhelmed and and just completely discouraged, what we have on display here is the heart of God and His acceptance towards sinners when they come to Him in repentance. We have a a God like a a good shepherd who searches for us, and and then when he finds us, he picks us up, carries us, lays us upon his shoulders, and carries us home, and he rejoices over us. We have a God that's, that's like a woman that diligently sweeps her house and carefully and diligently searches for it until she finds it. 
And then she rejoices when she has found it. And we have a God who is like a father, who is eager to forgive and joyfully and lovingly welcomes us home when we come to him in repentance and faith. And that's where we left off, and I want to jump back into our text in verse 20. We're going to read from 11 to 24 this week in order to sort of maintain our context. So beginning in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, I want to invite you to stand with me if you're able to do so for the reading of God's Word. God's inspired and inerrant Word says this, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. And has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible passage of Scripture that we have before us. And I confess to you that there is a great weightiness in conveying this to your people. So now, Lord, I just pray that you would speak through a mere man the words that you would have your people to hear that they might be encouraged and uplifted to see the love which you have for them in Christ Jesus. Father, help us to set apart this time and to not look at the things of the world, but to focus in on you through your word. We just pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. may be seated. It was uh, none other than Jonathan Edwards, who is commonly referred to as America's greatest theologian, who wrote in his book a treatise on religious affections. He said this, quote, True Christian fortitude consists in strength of mind, through grace exerted in two things, in ruling and suppressing the evil and unruly passions and affections of the mind, 
and in steadfastly and freely exerting and following good affections and dispositions. He went on to say further that the strength of a good soldier of Jesus Christ appears in nothing more than in steadfastly maintaining the holy calm, meekness, sweetness, and benevolence of his mind amidst all the storms, injuries, strange behavior, and surprising acts and events of this evil and unreasonable world. In other words, what Jonathan Edwards was saying is that your resolve as a Christian, your steadfastness in your faith, your endurance to the end of your life will be determined by your ability by maintaining a Christ-centered mind. Because as the mind entertains, entertains thoughts about God, whether high or low, your life will soon follow. And nothing could be more important for your Christian life than for you to have a right, pure, truthful understanding of your mind of who you really are and who God really is. It's no wonder that the British pastor and author John Stott once said that the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. Because small and little thoughts of God will bring small and puny worship. But high and lofty thoughts of God will bring high and lofty worship. And the greatest weapon that you have against any false thoughts, any false ideologies, any false psychologies, concepts, anything like that, that are contrary to who God truly is, is for you to destroy them in your mind with the truth of His Word. Because the farther that you drift from the Word of God, the farther that you will actually drift from the mind of God. And that's what we've seen in the minds of these Pharisees and the scribes who thought they knew the mind of God. They believed that there was no way that God would ever associate or even eat with the likes of a tax collector or a sinner like Jesus has been doing. That's why they're grumbling and complaining to him in verse 2. Their minds were polluted with corrupt thinking about the saving nature of God. Their foolish minds were darkened, and they had replaced the one true God, a God who is a Savior and a Redeemer, with one that was fashioned in their own minds. And yet, they should have known Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, which says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord." And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But far more than that, more than just knowing that God is a Savior of men, they should have known that it is with great joy that God does so. He, he is delighted. He is overjoyed to do so. Psalm 105, verse 43, the psalmist declares that God brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. Isaiah 62, 5 says, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Now, men, I don't know if you remember that day, but that was one of the best days 
of my life looking down that aisle and looking at that bride and the joy that I felt. That's the way God responds to you. Jeremiah 32, verses 40 and 41. It says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land and with all my heart and with all my soul. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. God's everlasting joy in recovering the lost is not an obscure theme in Scripture. And yet, that's what Jesus is trying to illustrate to these Pharisees in this parable with the young prodigal who is about to return to his father. He had rebelled against his father and all of his upbringing. He spent all of his inheritance. He wasted it on wine, women, and song. And he found himself eating the slop of pig feed in a pagan land during the midst of a severe famine. And so last week, we left off in verse 20, and we saw that he he came to himself, and he got up and went to his father. Now, we can probably picture in our mind a bit what this poor sinner looked like. He probably was gaunt and wasting away from his lack of food and nutrition. He was probably weak and and fighting the constant ache of hunger within his belly. His clothes were probably rags and were torn and battered from the lack of shelter since no one would give him anything. And more than likely, he reeked like a pig from eating with them. And those of you who have ever had a pig, you know that you can usually smell them before you see them. He would have been a disgrace to any Jewish father of the time. There would have been a huge amount of shame that he would have brought onto his family. But this is the bleak picture that Jesus Christ is painting of every sinner before coming to God. But look at the mercy of of our Heavenly Father, in verse 20. It says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, this is incredible in and of itself. He he hadn't even gotten close to being home. He probably was barely recognizable compared to when he had left. He may have had tears in his eyes as he plodded slowly along towards home. And yet it says that his father saw him, indicating, telling us that he was watching for him. He was looking for him. He kept his eye out for him and was waiting and hoping that someday his son would return home. And yet old men don't usually have great vision. And yet somehow he knew that looking off into the distance that this was his son coming towards him. It could have been his form, maybe, or his silhouette, or maybe he watched his gait as he he seen something about him in the distance that made him say that this is my son. And if you don't know God this morning, God is looking for you. He's waiting for you to come to the end of yourself. 
He's waiting for you to stop wasting all that he's given to you. To stop wasting and squandering your life and the breath that he's given to you, and he's wanting you to come to him. He's ready and he's willing to receive you to himself if only you will come. You don't clean up your life and then come to God. You just come like this son. Because he sees everything about you anyways. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets. He knows your heart, even while you are still at a distance from him. What is holding you back from repenting and coming home to your heavenly father? God doesn't have any grandchildren. You don't come to Christ through your parents because this is a personal issue between you and him. What is holding you back from being baptized and declaring to the world that you will follow none and none but Christ? Your Heavenly Father sees you. He is waiting for you. And if you will come to Him, He will by no means cast you out and grant you eternal life. But look at the first thing that this Father sends out to His Son as He sees Him. It says that He felt compassion for him. The first thing of the father that goes out to his son is his heart. He felt compassion for him. Long before he embraced his son and grabbed hold of him, the father sends out his heart. That's what the word compassion means. Because you could also render this that he, his heart went out to him. That's what compassion is. He felt pity. He was moved from the innermost part of his being. His gut was wrenched. Spurgeon defined compassion as putting yourself in the place of the sufferer and feeling his grief. This is how God feels about you, beloved. Psalm 103.13 says, Just as the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And he doesn't have just a little compassion for you. It's not just a one-shot deal. He's not upset with you when you come to him again and again with your heavy, burdened heart. He's not saying to himself, oh no, here so-and-so comes again with his or her troubles. He knows our fragile frames and that we are but dust. And he is compassionate to us as well. Listen to James 5.11. It says that the Lord is full to the uttermost, not just compassionate, but full of compassion and is merciful. He has an abundance of compassion, not just a wee sprinkling of compassion for you, but he is full of compassion. He knows your insecurities. He knows of your concern and your heaviness for your wife or your husband. He knows the angst that you have about seeing your kids grow up and as they start to make choices on their own. He knows the health problems that you're facing. God knows our our finite human limitations. And the Lord has an abundance of compassion for you. And yet this characteristic of compassion that the Father has for us, is the same characteristic that we as Christians should extend to others as well. Colossians 3.12 says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Our heart is to go out to others as well. When we see those who suffer, it should do something to us. When we see others struggling in the faith, it should stir our souls to want to help them. And believe me, there is plenty of work to do in this community and in this church. How easy is it to live in this community and just totally insulate yourself from the world where you don't have to give compassion? How easy is it to be part of a church, just come and go and do your thing and never have compassion and help those around you? But this father, he felt compassion for his son. And as he sees his son, he has compassion for him. And we see that this keeps just escalating and escalating for here, because notice that it says in the text there that he ran. He ran. Now, you need to understand something about old men in this culture. They don't run. It would have been an undignified thing to do. And to run in this culture would have meant that, meant that you would have to gather up the long robe that you probably would have worn. And you would have reached down between your legs and pulled up the back and pulled it up to the front and then tucked it into your waist belt, and then you would essentially have a pair of shorts, if you will. And it's called girding up your loins. And it would have exposed your legs, even if you had the white chicken legs like some of us do, right? And you would have, it would have been taboo in this culture. It would have been this shameful thing for a father to do. In fact, there's a bunch of Jewish literature written that if you are a man, you didn't run. Especially someone with wealth and nobility. But this word for ran here is not just a jog. It's not a skip. But it's an all-out sprint. He can't waste any time to get a hold of his son. He sees his son, and he feels pity for him and compassion, and he says to himself, I got to go meet him. And he runs. He runs to him. I've got to get a hold of him. Then it says, as the father approached him, the father embraced him. He just wrapped his arms of love around him. The word might be better translated that the father just fell upon him or that he seized him, he took possession, he pressed upon him. It's the same word that's used in Romans 15.3 where it says, For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This was weight that was transferred. He was completely gripped up by his father. There is no way this son's going anywhere. Long before a word of confession and repentance could he actually fall from his lips, God had received him and he embraced him into his arm. And then it says that he kissed him. Even in his filth, in his stench, even in his dilapidated state and this foul, smelly, filthy state, it says that the father kissed him. This wasn't a peck on the cheek. He wasn't just saying, hey son, how's life treating you? But this word for kissed means to kiss much. To kiss again and again and again repeatedly. He didn't tell him, you know what, son, go get yourself cleaned up and then come talk to me in the front porch. 
There's no holding him back. There's no keeping him off. Not one word was said to the son. But there is nothing but tender, fervent, repeated kisses indicating that the father had fully forgiven him, fully embraced him, and fully accepted him. As Charles Spurgeon wrote of this, surely also this was a kiss of delight, as if he took pleasure in him, delighting in him, feasting his eyes with the sight of him, feeling more happy to see him than to see all of his field, to see his fatted calves and all the treasures he possessed. His delight was in seeing this poor, restored child. Surely, this summed up this kiss. Spurgeon also preached a seven-point message on these four words. And... He kissed him. Because it expresses the great love of the Father that He has for the Son. It expresses much forgiveness, full restoration, exceeding joy, overflowing comfort, strong assurance, and intimate communion with His beloved Son. What greater sign of forgiveness could this Son have received? What gesture of acceptance could have been greater than this? To be instantly reconciled to his father without even saying a word. This is what happens between you and God with repentance. And that there is reconciliation. There is no coming back to me later and saying, get your act together. But this is what a picture of what God offers you through Jesus Christ. As the one who left the glory of heaven and he came down to this earth and who was born of a woman and born under the law. And he bore the shame and the humility of dying on a cross in your place. Who is now seated at the right hand of the Father of God, ready to embrace repentant sinners who will come to Him in faith if you will give Him, and He will give you that full and lasting and complete forgetfulness of your sin. He will never bring it up again. He will separate it as far from you as the east is to the west, and He will throw it into the sea of forgetfulness, never to bring it up to you again. And he will adopt you as your own, his own dearly beloved son or daughter. I asked you last week to ask yourself this question Do you enjoy God? Do you delight in God? Do you treasure God? I don't want to guess. For some of you here this morning, that the answer to that question is no. I have a hard time enjoying God. I struggle to delight in Him. And I think that's probably for a couple reasons. One, you don't really believe in your mind that God loves you and is for you. And accepts you. And two, that along with that, you find yourself constantly evaluating your performance and telling yourself, you know what? I don't measure up. I keep stumbling through the week. 
I can't control my tongue. My thoughts are a mess inside of me. I'm tired of these crazy drivers on US 33, and I just want to play some bumper cars and let Matt deal with them later and give him something to do. And you're not as obedient as you want to be. And so the first, the answer to that first dilemma, I think, this text makes it abundantly clear that God loves you and forgives you and He delights in you. And there are so many texts that affirm that, that I want to try to press these onto your mind this morning. And I want you to write them on your heart. And I want you to meditate upon them and, and draw them up in your mind the next time your mind starts to question the, if God is for you. Because the only way that I know how to combat that for you is with Scripture. Isaiah 53.5 It says, But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name. Psalm 23, 6 says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm eighty four eleven. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 103, verse 8-12. through 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Proverbs chapter 3, 11-12, My son... Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. Matthew 25, verse 21. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Luke 6.23, Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Luke 12.32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day. Of Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. 
Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither life, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are so many more that we could just grab hold of. But I just gave you a few, and I want you to grab hold of those. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Let those promises resound in your heart so that they cause your heart to soar in the delight of the acceptance of your Heavenly Father. And the second one is this. Your salvation is not based upon your deeds done in righteousness but what Christ has done for you. It's based upon His righteousness that you get credited to you, that you get apprehended by faith. This is part of justification. Because living the Christian life is not about perfection. The Christian life is about direction. If you want to live the doctrine of perfection in this life, just go down Hinton Mill Road, hang a left there. There's a bunch of those little white shacks on the left-hand side, and they would love to have you and tell you that you can be perfected in this life. But it doesn't work like that. The question is not about your perfect rule-keeping and keeping of the law. There was only one person who did that, and when they crucified him 2,000 years ago. But the Christian life is about you restoring a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it is to love Christ and to find Christ more precious in your heart than anything else that you have in this world. It's to treasure Him. It's to cherish the glory of God before anything in this world. And for every glimpse that you take of the failures that you had in this past week, You look ahead to the hope and the righteousness and the glory of Christ Jesus and you thank God for the precious treasure that you have in Him. Look to Christ. Keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Sing to Him. What can wash away my sin but nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ? Preach The gospel. You don't get the gospel preached to you one time and you're done with it. You preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day. Grab hold onto these. Meditate upon them. Memorize them. Let them resound in your heart to make your heart sing in the worship and the adoration that you have for your God that has saved you like a heavenly father. Let's pray. Oh God, what a wonderful thing to meditate and dwell upon the love that you have for us. Father, let that resound in our hearts. Let us look to this text and say, our God delights to redeem us. Let us not just look at salvation as a one-time event. The gospel is something that happened in the past. Repentance that's only done one time in this life. But we live a life of repentance and preaching the gospel to ourselves and looking to the blessed hope of Christ Jesus and His blood-bought righteousness. Father, we just pray that that would resound in our minds and our hearts this day so that we can live for Your glory. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.